What I learned from investment, I learned from Shark Tank. And that's very, very wrong. It's not the way the investment world works. When I was told we were gonna go apply for Shark Tank, I knew we were gonna get it. We were close to essentially getting, taking money from loan sharks in order to get the cafe open. The people that give you money want their money back and they'll find a way to get their money back and you start to lose control over that. Hi everybody, my name is Kelly Martin and you are listening to the sixth episode of Making It Work, made possible by FedEx. This is not another show about Silicon Valley and blue chip billionaires. We talk with entrepreneurs from across the U.S. to uncover the highs and lows of starting a business from scratch. In this episode, we're discussing how to find and work with investors and what it's really like to appear on Shark Tank. Asking the questions is Tom Scallon. Whatever happened to just going it alone? The bootstrapping entrepreneur was once a sacred symbol of self-destiny and fearlessness, the ultimate personification of the American dream. Now, if you tell people your business is self-funded, you're less of a go-getter and more of a good-for-nothing, someone who's unable to get a venture capitalist or an angel investor to take their business seriously. But things are slowly changing. Business owners have seen what's going on. The unicorns yet to make a profit, the investors fighting for control, founders knocked off their perch and finding themselves as outsiders in their own company. As a result, self-funded and customer-funded business models are making a comeback. And with new avenues of investment opening up, like crowdfunding, it's now possible for entrepreneurs to offer equity in their companies while still maintaining full control. We'll get onto this type of investment a little later in the episode. But for now, I'd like to introduce Dana. She's owner of Anna Ono, a business based out of Philadelphia that makes lingerie for breast cancer survivors. She's used her company's mission of helping women who've undergone mastectomies to live rather than just survive to attract the right type of socially conscious investor. But it turns out it just wasn't that easy. My investment path was incredibly difficult and it took me a long time before I found the right investors. I wasn't expecting that. You kind of, well, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but what I learned from investment, I learned from Shark Tank. And that's very, very wrong. It's not the way the investment world works. So I was afraid at first to go after any money because I thought to myself, oh my God, I'm gonna go and ask people for $250,000 and they're gonna take 40% of my business. And I'm so glad I didn't do that because it's not how it works. And what ended up happening was I went out on a circuit to do pitch competitions. And in those pitch competitions, I actually leveraged them for marketing costs, not for investment. I was thinking to myself, if I can pitch in a room full of 100 women, I've now reached 100 women who likely know somebody with breast cancer and they'll go home and tell their loved ones or their friends or their sisters or their mothers. And what happened was after my first pitch, I actually got reaction from the crowd of people that were interested in hearing more and interested in hearing more about the investment opportunity. And it put me in this position where I thought to myself, wow, maybe I can raise money. Maybe this is something I could do to help build my business. But even after that point, it still took me a year and a half before I found my first investor. And that's because of many different reasons, because you have to have enough revenue to prove your proof of concept. You have to show a growing business. You have to show that this business is marketable and that um, investors can get their money back. That's a huge thing. People don't just give you their money to you because they believe in you. 
They give you their money because they want their money back and they want it back bigger than what they gave it to you. And I kind of was learning all of this amongst the way because I thought, oh, people are going to believe in my business and they're going to want to support women. And this is going to be a really great win-win all around. And it really proved that I had to show what does my business look like? How does my business profit? How does my business grow? And eventually, what does that exit strategy look like? And you can't ever go into investing or raising money if you don't have a clear exit plan. And that was something I didn't know when I first started out. And I was told it, but now I really understand it. And that's because the people that give you money want their money back and they'll find a way to get their money back. And you start to lose control over that outside of building a successful business. So investment can help you. Investment can also hurt you. And you have to be prepared to know what all outcomes of that path is going to look like. Did you lose control? Not yet. I have not lost control yet. Um, you know, as as you go into raising money and getting investments at each level of financial raise, you lose a uh, percentage to your investors. I don't necessarily look at it as losing a percentage. I look at it as gaining valuable advisors and insight. I have a really active investor base. A lot of these are past professionals, past business owners that have been through what I've been through and really give me invaluable advice to grow and scale my business. And as you gain more of those people in your network, actually the stronger your business can become because they become your advocates, they become your advisors, they talk to other people, they get you into rooms that you wouldn't have gotten into on your own. And I look at it as, as gaining expertise and not necessarily losing control per se. It's what I was going to ask next, actually, because when you look at people who go on Shark Tank, they want people to invest who can give them their expertise, who can open doors for them. Uh, so that was important to you as well. You wanted to find investors that could have an active part in the business and could improve it. Absolutely. I am a really good designer and I'm a really good fashion industry professional. I've never owned my own business before. I don't know about operation laws and accounting practices and business structures and legal aspects of doing one thing or doing another. So as you build this network and as you bring these people into your circle, they've made all the mistakes. They've made a lot of the mistakes that you would make, but with them in your court and then in your corner, you can avoid some of them if you listen. And do you? <laughs> uh, I, I, I do listen. Um, I do listen. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to listen because you really are dead set on one perspective or one idea or one direction of what you think you should head. And your advisors might be telling you something different, but you can be stubborn at times because it is your business. And I will say a lot of the times they have been right and I have been wrong. So I'm starting to listen more. <laughs> have you ever been right and they've been wrong? Yes, I have had a few wins where I have been right and they have been wrong. And, um, and, and it's, uh, that's a lot of times when it comes to marketing my business or storytelling of my business or the things that I'm the most comfortable in. So that, so that's good. I, I do, I do feel like a really strong champion when I win one of those arguments. <laughs> it's always nice to say, I told you so. It is nice. It is nice. Have you ever applied for Shark Tank? I applied for Shark Tank in the summer of 2013. 
I went through the audition process. I um, really actually enjoyed my Shark Tank journey because I filled in the application, I had the phone interview, and I got brought into the audition space. And what was really incredible about my opportunity with Shark Tank is I knew the one question that they always asked was, how are you going to make money and how much money have you made? And I hadn't launched my line yet, so I had made zero dollars. So what I had to craft was a story of how I was going to make money and how this was a future business and how I had to engage them to encourage them that even though I hadn't launched yet, that it was worth investing in. And what that did was that forced me into all of these business practices or all of these tactics and skills that everybody tells you to do, like make a business plan. And I had never done one before. And actually getting ready for my Shark Tank audition set me up for the success that I'm experiencing today in my business. And I went to Shark Tank. I had an incredible audition. I did not make it to the show because everybody would have known if I did. Uh, but I really think that a detriment of, of my pitch to Shark Tank was that I had not launched yet and um, I did not have any revenues coming in. But I was very encouraged and very supported by the producers and uh, the people that were running the audition uh, after afterwards, I, I thought I had a shot, but um, you know, there's there's always casted uh, people and businesses they they want to see on air, and uh, actually knowing now a lot of businesses that have been through the Shark Tank cycle. I feel fortunate that I never made it to the show because um, I wasn't the right business and I would have given away way too much too early and everything happens for a reason. And it turns out I didn't need Shark Tank. So that was really good for me. Don't go for money if you don't need the money. Um, it will shape and change the prospect and the future of your business. And if it's not something that you need to do, just because otherbody around you is raising money and just because other businesses are raising money doesn't mean that you absolutely have to. There are other ways to build your business outside of taking in angels or VCs or other investment firms to structure and develop your business. It was clearly a struggle for Dana to tread the fine line between pushing back on some of her investors' advice and not coming across as inflexible or single-minded. You see, the more you talk to her, the more you realise she has this dogged determination to preserve Anna Ono's status as a social enterprise. But that doesn't mean she doesn't want to make money. Dana isn't the only entrepreneur championing a more responsible way of doing business. There are others proving that purpose and profit are not mutually exclusive. Take Liz. She founded Boston-based company Artlifting with her brother in 2013. It supplies artwork that was created by artists who are homeless or living with disabilities. Not only did she raise an impressive $2.4 million with her first round of funding, she did it all while preserving Artlifting's vital social mission. So... My brother and I started art lifting six years ago. Um, originally, we bootstrapped from 4,000 of our savings to six-figure revenue. I then went out and pitched investors um, to be able to scale our impact nationally. So we raised $2.4 to be able to scale. And we now have artists in 25 states and customers in 46 states and five continents. Um, so it's been really exciting to grow over time. And a big reason why we've been able to grow that quickly is um, the investment enabled us to grow the team. 
I think out of all of the entrepreneurs that I've interviewed, 2.4 million as the initial investment is kind of is the biggest amount by far. Does that amount of money bring bring a lot of pressure? Having investment, of course, brings pressure and high expectations. Um, but you know, everything has pros and cons, and for us, the pros by far outweighed the cons. Um, because it enabled us to further our impact. And you know, now our artists have earned over a million dollars and many have gained housing. Um, and all of them have gained confidence knowing that, okay, I'm a person of value and people are defining me by my talent rather than my weaknesses. So how does it work with the 2.4 million? Can you spend it on what you like or do you have to run it by your new investors? How it works with the investment is you share the plan with the investors when you're pitching them. Um, And then the investors have a representative on the board. Um, So in board meetings, you decide the strategy and iterate from there. Um, and we've been really blessed that the, our investors support us with, you know, warm intros that are strategic, but they aren't, um, they aren't kind of like in our faces. Um, they really trust me and trust the team um, to be able to grow the company and iterate as we see fit. How do you find investors? Um, we took an untraditional path to finding investors in all of the, a typical podcast or article on how to get investors. Everyone would say like only get warm intros, um, never cold email people. But of course I got some warm intros, but we also just cold emailed a bunch of people and we're really surprised that several took meetings. Um, I think that obviously it's the dream to, have a million warm intros that happen quickly, um, but oftentimes that warm intros take forever. And you know, you might have coffee with someone, and they'll say they they'll make all these intros, but then they're on vacation for two weeks, or they forget, and you have to keep reminding them. So we just went for it in both directions to make the investment happen as quickly as possible. And we were in a really um, blessed position because we weren't pitching an idea on paper. We had already proven, okay, we took 4000 of our savings and turned it into over 100000 in revenue. Um, so the ROI was already there. And where is this email list of millionaires that you found? Um, <laughs> speaking of hustling, um, I mean, there's it's beautiful with the internet. You can really... Uh, learn a lot via LinkedIn or just articles on investors. We just looked around. Um, oftentimes, of course, for cold emailing people, especially millionaires, emails aren't public. But if they work at a company, you can often guess what their email is. If you know you know, someone else's email is liz.powers at fedex.com, then you can assume their email is john.smith at fedex.com. Um, So we did a lot of uh, (laughs) guessing, and you eventually will get their email right. Yeah, yeah, that sounds pretty sneaky to me, Liz, but I like it. (laughs) We're not the first ones to do it. I wish I could take credit for it. And when it comes to the big day, how do you pitch to an investor? Usually it's like a coffee or a lunch. Investors are... I think before going into this, I assumed investors were investing in the company, But really, investors are investing as you as an individual. 
in the founder or co-founding team. I think actually social work was great preparation for that because obviously a lot of my job was building personal relationships and building trust. Before art lifting, I was working with victims of domestic violence and running art therapy groups. Um, so that, you know, obviously is one of the most vulnerable populations that exist. And for many individuals, it took months to earn trust, to open up about what they've been through. With investors, I think I was in a blessed position to be able to earn trust quicker. It felt a lot easier than my job before. And what was your success rate like after you pitched to investors? We were able to raise our first rounds quite quickly. Um, I think because we had proven that ROI and bootstrapped it um, and shown that we're hustlers. Um, So our first round we raised in a month and that was 1.3. And back to the speed factor, um, a big part of an investment is really like getting that snowball to run down the hill. And then once you've got the first one's obviously the hardest, but then that investor will help you network and do intros to others. And it signals to, even if they don't know that first investor, it signals to others of, okay, this is an attractive deal that I should really think about. Were you just looking for cold, hard cash or were the expertise um, and past experiences of the investors important to you? Uh, I think any founder is looking not just for cash, but also strategic investors uh, who can help do intros and connect you to the right people. So um, we were in a great position where we were able to get investors that could not only provide much needed money to pay salaries and grow the team, but also get us intros to you know sea levels at big corporations. And where would art lifting be if you hadn't looked for investment? Art lifting would almost certainly um, not have had the same impact to date if we hadn't gone for investment. Um, I'm guessing it would still be, you know, a relatively small company of a couple, you know, two or three employees um, with a much smaller reach in terms of artists and customers. Um, so investment has really paid off for us. Did you worry that involving investors would risk the social enterprise aspect of your business? I I was very hesitant to even pitch for investors. Um, So the first two years of art lifting, it was an interesting ride. So I was full-time and earned no salary. Um, So I was really hustling. Uh, On the side, I was a dorm head at Harvard. So I got free room and board through that job and basically was doing catering a few nights a week. And then um, for cash, I would coach sailing on um, some afternoons and on weekends and then would work, you know, probably 50 hours a week on art lifting for free. So it definitely wasn't a sustainable lifestyle. But to me, it was worth it because I was really skeptical of, well, if I get investors, what if they say only 1% of the profit goes to our artists versus our business model was 55% of the profit? Um, I was also skeptical um, because my background was as a social worker, art therapist, and sailing coach. And I had literally never worked at a business before, <laughs> never mind pitched investors. So I just you know, thought that 
that world was intimidating and I was a little cynical. But a, a friend who he had raised millions for his startup, he really pushed me to pitch for investment. He was like, Liz, you're, you can grow so much faster and have a much larger impact if you go for investors. And also, like, this lifestyle of working a million hours a week and not getting paid by lifting at all is not sustainable. So I'm really grateful to him for pushing me in that direction. And um, one thing that eased my worries about, well, what if investors twist our social mission was we're actually filed as a public benefit corporation. That's a really new filing status in the U.S., Basically, it means you're a for-purpose, for for-profit company, and you actually have a legally binding social mission. So unlike a typical company, which is called a C-corporation, you don't have to always maximize shareholder value. You have to maximize your social mission um, while, of course, maximizing shareholder value. So that really protected us. What advice would you give to someone who's not sure about whether to seek investment for their company? When do you know you're ready? For individuals who are questioning whether to go for investment ever or now, if it's the right time, I would challenge you to think, well, first, have I, do I really need investment? Um, so, you know, people who need to develop a product and need investment from the very beginning versus with art lifting, we didn't need investment from the beginning because we were printing prints on demand. So we'd get the payment for the piece and then we'd have the money to be able to print it. So it really depends on what field you're in. Um, like if you're creating a biomedical device, well, you need to be pitching an idea on paper because it costs so much to be able to create that. But for other, I think oftentimes entrepreneurs assume they need investment earlier than they do for companies like us that could create a minimal viable product and just test out the ideas. If you do do that and you are able to prove an ROI on you know very small investment of personal savings, then it'll make the process of pitching you know, big-time investors much easier later on. So I'd really encourage people, when possible, to bootstrap at the beginning. I think the minimum viable product concept, like for us, we had never created a website before, but we use Shopify, a website template. I think it was like $15 a month or something. Created super basic with just four artists. Um, and then that really small website. We just got an article on the cover of the Boston Globe business section, and then that led to 10000 in sales. What's it like getting millions of dollars overnight in your bank account? Is it like winning the lottery? Is it scary? Getting investment was definitely extremely exciting time, but also intimidating, where you know, I felt like, okay, all of a sudden there's this ticking clock where we need to perform really quickly and prove ourselves to these investors. Um, I have learned a lot over time, um, but you know, in the very beginning, shortly after we got investors, one day, I'll never forget, I literally had 22 meetings interviewing potential candidates. So they were 20 minute slots and it was just the whole day. So one thing I've learned since then is you don't need to do everything at once. And like, especially for us, we're not in an incredibly competitive market where there's five other companies fighting for market share. 
we're a super unique company. So I think it's really important for startup founders to be mindful of balance. And it's best for the company if you're able to stick with it for the long term and not burn out. So if I were to redo things, I wouldn't, you know, schedule 22 meetings in one day because that makes you really tired. (laughs) You're listening to Making It Work. Coming up. When I was told we were going to go on or apply for Shark Tank, I knew we were going to get it. We were close to essentially getting, taking money from loan sharks in order to get the cafe open. Hey, I'll trust you enough. This is not my life savings. This is a little tiny bit of money. The guy sounds good on the video. I'll give him a whirl. All of the entrepreneurs we interviewed for this episode had had varying success when it came to finding investment. Some of them hit the jackpot first time of asking, some haven't secured funding at all yet, and some realized they were going about it the wrong way and changed their approach. Of course, there are some things you can't change your gender, your ethnicity, your sexual orientation, you're stuck with it. It won't surprise you to hear that you're way more likely to secure investment if you're white male. Then comes women, then comes ethnic minorities. But what if you're only not white? You're also not American. And to add to things, the product you make is unapologetically ethnically inspired. Let's have a chat with Raheem. He's co-founder of Jinjam Brothers, based out of New York City. Him and his brother Mohammed make this great African ginger drink. They also own and run the Jinjan Cafe in Harlem. What they're doing is really popular with their core customer base. But as they learned very quickly, this wasn't enough to win over any deep-pocketed investors. The reason why we couldn't access capital, you know, you could write a book about it. Everyone had their own reason, but essentially... To us, it didn't matter what the reasons were. I mean, we took it as feedback when it, when it made sense, but um, oftentimes it seemed more like an excuse for, for not doing so because it tends to be them not either them not believing that we can do it or them thinking that them suffering from, you know, the belief that a lot of people do in the Western world that anything out of Africa can't really be all that great. So, yeah, so we started getting into competitions, as many competitions as can get into, be it in small pitch competitions locally or something like the FedEx grant or the American Entrepreneurship Award, which we, we won. We won both of those. We got some funding through that. That kind of saved us for a year. And uh, we, we cobbled together a little bit of money from people we met over the first two years we were doing this. And on and on, pretty much wherever we could find $10,000 here, $50,000 here, uh, there, which wasn't very many places that allowed us to keep going, to keep growing, to keep building. We found that we were always getting turned out by venture capitalists for one reason or another, uh, to a point where we realized if we kept going that route, we'll just we're not go out of business because we were losing money every year. Uh, we're still losing money every year. Uh, but we had a lot of people that believed in what we're doing, be it friends, acquaintances that don't have a lot of money that would be able to invest or give us $500, $1,000, uh, but not much more than that. Uh, that's what led us to decide to do an equity crowdfunding campaign. Uh, lucky for us, we live post-Obama, if you will, after they passed the Jobs Act, that became possible. It used to be that you could not privately raise capital from folks you don't know to protect. You know, you could only do so if you um, you could only do so from wealthy individuals, so-called accredited investors. But now that's that's not uh, that's not necessary. 
So yeah, that's what led us to launch an equity crowdfunding campaign and that very much saved us up to where we are now. Did you have no other option but to pursue crowdfunding? No, not really. We would have, we would have gladly um, raised capital from a venture fund or a, a small group of private individuals that, um, that could cut us two hundred dollars to $500,000 checks. It would have allowed us to be at least two years ahead of where we are right now. You said you didn't have much success with venture capitalists. Do you think that's because your product is African or because you're African? I think it's a little bit of both. Probably more because I'm African or we are African and, you know, black or minority of, of color. You know, women suffer this similar fate. And if you happen to be a woman and black, it's much worse, right? It's like the stats are like incredible. It's something like... Point zero 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 six percent, like less than one tenth of a percent of venture funding goes to uh, women of color, right? The numbers are slightly better for 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 men of color. But I stumbled upon a, a creative stat, something along the lines of, oh, out of everyone that raised over a hundred thousand dollars, some eighty-seven percent are white males, uh, and then some thirteen percent are white females, and uh, the remaining ten percent is distributed among all the other minorities. Right. So it's in the low single digits for black men and in below a single digit for for black females. Right. Even if you look around the, the landscape of products that come out of Africa, quote unquote, you tend to find that the ones that are started by some white person that ended up in Africa somehow at a village and discovered this amazing root or tree or, or, or whatever the case may be, can easily come back and start touting all the health benefits and all these amazing properties of said product and raise tons of capital, tie a little bit of a feel-good story behind it. In some, you know, well-meaning in many cases, but it's, hey, we're helping build wealth in this little village and we're doing X, Y, and Z. Give us $10 million so we can build this company out. There, those folks tend to have access to capital relatively easily. It's still not easy. It's never easy for anyone to raise capital, right? We got on a call with an investor at some point. We, we were on a call, we were talking, and he goes, yeah, we had sent him samples of our first product, the ginger, ginger. It's a ginger drink with pineapples, lemon, vanilla, and anise, but a very strong ginger flavor. And he tasted it and tells us, you know, guys, I think people on the coast, you know, meaning New York, L.A., those folks will maybe embrace this product, but I don't see your average hick in the middle of America enjoying this, which was kind of fascinating to me because I lived in the middle of America. I went to high school in the middle of America. I went to college in the middle of America. And I know these people he's referring to, right? And these are the exact same people that live in, that finish college and move to New York and move to LA and move to San Francisco, right? You know, there really isn't that much of a difference between them. And it's as if where you geographically based automatically exclude you from having a taste for a certain product. But so we've had answers like that. Um, I can easily see that guy seeing uh, if, we, if we weren't, you know, maybe he believed in what he said, but I also feel that if we're a couple of, um, white kids that went to, I don't know, NYU or Harvard that come back and told him that and start touting all the health benefits of ginger and all these other products will eventually commercialize, he'll kind of look past that, right? And just believe these guys can execute on this and that it's a man, the opportunity of a century. It's not a knock on those folks, but the reality is a lot of the venture capitalists 
their uh, their followers, right? And they they just kind of replicate what they've seen in the past. So if I go in front of someone and start pitching them, and they're just having funded anyone in the past that looks like me. They might like me for a brief second, but when the time comes to cut that check, they'll still be very apprehensive, you know, like they just can't get themselves. Sometimes I don't, I don't even feel it's a very conscious decision, right? I just feel like they just can't get themselves to, to, to see someone like me, you know, pull off building a $100 million, billion-dollar company because they, they don't open the pages every morning and, and see the black Zuckerberg, right? So, Do you think this reflects more of an institutional racism? So we know in the US, some of the most successful entrepreneurs, richest people are immigrants. But do you just think you're the wrong type of immigrant in their eyes? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, this is, uh, this is something that started long before. This is something that started in 1619. When a lot of folks think about racism in this, they only think about someone, you know, lynchings or people tying someone behind a truck and beating them up and doing things like that. Uh, they don't think refusing to fund someone or refusing to hire someone or refusing to go into business with someone because of whatever prejudice they may have um, based on their skin color. They don't think of that as being racism, you know? Like, it doesn't even cross their minds. Um, and that's actually the worst kind because you can see it, you can point to it, you can really, you can give the stats like those I gave you, but even if you gave that to a venture capitalist, and which we have, they'll, for, for a brief moment, they'll be like, oh, wow, you know, you're, that, that's amazing, that's crazy. And you can see that they, they, they feel for you because they're humans after all, right? But five minutes later when you walk out of that room, that's not something they're going to dwell on. Because you'll see even like now you have a lot of social impact funds, you have a lot of funds that are created specifically, you know, at least on, on, in the pro- prospectus or in the advertising material to fund minority investors. But you find that the majority of those, they end up funding only companies that are only part, like co-founded by a minority, if that makes sense, right? So it's, 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 because even those those funds are, are a little apprehensive about doing it, let alone the ones that are that are that that's not their mandate. Do you think the narrative of of hardworking, industrious immigrants sort of harms you in a way because uh, potential investors will just think, oh, they'll they'll be successful one way or another? I've actually had people say that to us. You know, as they're rejecting us. You know, you know. I think, uh, I think you guys have done great work up until now. Um, we're not, you know, we're not gonna invest that deal. But um, you guys seem to be very, very industrious. And and they essentially use the all the things you tell them about how we got so far, how the crazy hours we're pulling, the the crazy things we've had to do to access five thousand dollars, the moving money from personal bank account to 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 pay a bill, to to essentially being overdrawn in either the bank or the business account for years. Like essentially all these stories of being um, creative in the way we solve our problems, they use that to tell us, you know, you guys seem to be, to know what you're doing. I'm pretty sure you'll be all right. You'll be successful. Well, yeah, we do know what we're doing, but if you don't get access to capital, we're done. It's really that simple, right? Did you manage to find investment from a venture capitalist in the end? No, still, still searching. How was your, uh, your your cafe funded? Was that crowdfunding? Yeah, so the crowdfunding we launched, uh, we were trying to raise the maximum allowed in that category as dictated by the rules, which was a million and seventy thousand dollars. But really, we're trying to get one and a half million and up for this first round. So as we launched that, 
so far we've raised about $151,000 and got a $20,000 credit card loan. And we're, we're close to essentially getting taking money from loan sharks in order to get the cafe open because we had already gotten the lease and we owed $21,000 to someone that we had to pay back in two months, right? During this whole time, I'm working full-time. My brother's working full-time in our day jobs because we have to eat and we have to send money to our family in Africa. So yeah, that's how we got the cafe open. And that's why I'm working crazy hours right now because we can't even afford to hire people yet, you know? So you set up the cafe in order to fund the wholesale drinks business? We realized that being African and selling an African product is just too much. We're asking people to be too open-minded. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, it's, and it's not like we're selling anything exotic, right? Like our first drink is ginger, pineapple, lemon, vanilla, and anise in a beverage. No matter where you're from in the world, you've probably heard all of these things, and that sounds delicious. But the minute you say it's a traditional African drink, now, God knows what people are conjuring up in their minds, right? The reason we opened the cafes is we wanted to create an immersive experience where when people walk in from the decor to the music to the customer service to the product offering you'll have in there will be executed at such a high level that when you walk in, regardless of who you are, even if you don't know what this is, it's objectively nice. And in this way, We'll have a venue where we can, you know, we can essentially touch all your senses and then give you a sample of some of the products we have and, and, and make you comfortable. And now you have something tangible that you can associate with Africa beyond whatever preconception you had. And then the second, you know, survival benefit is that the location of the cafe and what we think financially, what we think the cafe can do is we think it can be a fairly profitable business and that would essentially enable us to be able to keep building the business, whether or not we access investment capital. Great. When I'm in New York, I'll drop in. Please do. Am I hipster enough? You're, well, you're the, you're the best kind of hipster if you come to the Jinjang Cafe. <laughs> <laughs> Crowdfunding wasn't Raheem and his brother's first choice when it came to investments, but it shouldn't be considered as their last resort either. Listen, they're never going to change the fact that they're black or African immigrants. But I think crowdfunding did show them that there was an appetite for African products. And in turn, it allowed them to open up the Jinjang Cafe, a physical representation of African culture and hospitality that will hopefully one day get a venture capitalist or angel investor to share in their vision. If they're looking for someone to put them off the idea of venture capitalism, they should speak to David. He's the owner of Shark Wheel, a California-based company that makes square wheels for luggage, skateboards, basically anything that needs to move. He's no stranger to VC investment, but has decided that it's all just too slow. These days, he's all about equity crowdfunding. Out of everything that I've done, the most recent one is the best of them all, equity crowdfunding. Being able to go out there and with a two-minute, three-minute video, tell your story, get enough people interested in it to where they'll pony up a little bit of money and go, hey, I'll trust you enough. It's, it's a gamble for them. It really is. They're not sophisticated investors. They're people that are willing to go, this is not my life savings. This is a little tiny bit of money. The guy sounds good on the video. I'll give him a whirl. 
Trying to go to a VC and getting that is impossible. VCs require, you know, hey, let's see your business plan. Let's see your projections. Let's see all this crap that you don't know what it is. Nobody knows what it is. You just spend all this time trying to do it. And the truth is, you just need a shot. You just need to get the money and get out there. Well, the world has a really great way, the law of averages, I guess it is, of figuring out whether or not you're worth a damn. And if you put your product out there on Kickstarter or equity crowdfunding or this or that, and people care about it and flock to it, you got a good idea. If you raise nothing and nobody cares about it, guess what? You got a loser on your hands, bury it. It'll tell you very quickly whether it's even worth raising the money. So I believe raising capital is done online through the equity crowdfunding, through the Kickstarters, the Indiegogos, that kind of stuff, because you don't have to have a product. You just have to have an idea and enough people will either believe in you or not believe in you. And that's as good a shot as you're ever going to get. You say that crowdfunding shows you that you've got a good idea, but that's more of a proof of concept, right? After you sell that fixed amount of products, how do you keep the momentum up? Okay, so I went on Kickstarter and I sold 1,100 sets of wheels in 30 days, 60 days, whatever it was. That proved to me that there was interest in this crazy wheel, okay? Now, I couldn't go back to Kickstarter again. Obviously, the people that I would fulfill on Kickstarter would be my customers and they'd come back and buy. But now I had to go to the next level. It was like, okay, proof of concept. I proved that 1,100 people cared enough about this idea to give me money on a whim in the hopes that they get this product. The next step is you've got to go to that next stage. And the next stage for us, obviously, was an online store. And now you got to figure out how to drive traffic to your online store. Kickstarter already gave us a lot of that traffic. We were on the Atlantic. We trended on Reddit. We did all these things to where we had traffic. Now we needed to do something with it. you got to create it first and then throw the, the product at them. So it was just a generational thing. Just keep going from, you know, beginning little piece, little piece, little piece to finally where you're at a home run. Do you make enough money to invest from Kickstarter that can compete with traditional investors? Uh, Kickstarter's interesting in that you need to provide a reward back to them. They're not just giving you money for free. You've got to make a product and get it back to them. And that's what determines whether it was a success or not. And a typical VC gives you money. He's not expecting a set of wheels back in 30 days or otherwise it wasn't a success. Um, so in that regard, it's a little bit, it's a whole lot easier to raise the money, but the money comes with a different string attached to it. You better be able to perform because if you have to go back to the trough a second time, Kickstarter doesn't let you do that. You can't say, hey, I failed, guys. We're going to let's raise, turn the Kickstarter back on, raise another hundred grand and see if we can do it this time. It doesn't work that way. The strings attached are pretty tight. You got to perform and you got to, you know, deliver what you say you're going to deliver in the video. I'd like to understand the distinction here. Do you use crowdfunding to shift a whole load of products very quickly or do you do it to actually get an amount of money to reinvest back into your company? It's exactly both. With the Frisbee, I put it out there on Kickstarter and did a Frisbee Kickstarter. Even though it had already been made and done, it was just a launch mechanism. It was a way to get interest in it. Um, I'm doing a start engine, I believe, right now, or we just did one recently, um, because we legitimately needed to have working capital to fund these big orders we've got and things like that. So 
they're both happening simultaneously, literally. One's running to get the capital to do the things. The other one's being used as launch mechanisms for products. Do you still have traditional investors? Yes. And believe it or not, when you go through an equity crowdfunding thing like a start engine or whatever, those are traditional investors to you. They show up on the books just like a regular person. When we first started, there were a couple of friends and family people that came in for decent amounts of money, and they were the original originals. Um, And then everybody after that came from the public. How important are the expertise of your investors or their ability Uh, to open doors for you, or is it really just about getting the money? Okay, so we have different kinds of investors, obviously. Some of them came in with just large sums of money because they wanted part of this thing. They weren't offering any other expertise. They just said, we want a big piece of this company. How can we buy it? And we sold them a piece of the company for lots of money. Uh, Our attorneys came to us and said, hey, we're going to charge you a lot of money in attorney's fees, and you seem to be a startup, and you seem to have a really great idea. How about we take stock instead? And you guys don't have to pay us anything or a greatly reduced rate, and we'll take stock in lieu of legal services. And we said, super, let's do that. Um, If it was advantageous for us to do it that way, we did it that way. If it wasn't, we did it the other way. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. All in all, we interviewed 10 entrepreneurs for this podcast, and I think most of them had applied for Shark Tank. If you don't know what Shark Tank is, it's a TV show where people showcase their business and try to convince big investors to put up money in exchange for equity. It's good. There are lots of egos clashing, dramatic music, and a big rug in the middle of the studio for some reason. Anyway, Dana, the first entrepreneur you heard in this episode, got all the way to the auditions. I know Raheem, the guy with the ginger drink, applied but wasn't successful. The only one of our entrepreneurs who actually appeared on it and got investment was David, the one you just heard. So I thought I'd leave it to him to tell you all about it and wrap up the episode. So here's David and his very intense experience on Shark Tank. I'm out. So I, although I'm very... I'm the salesman of the company. I'm the fire behind the company. I'm the passion behind the company. I do not like being in the public eye. I like being very, very private. I like it, my fishbowl, and I don't like people looking in my fishbowl. Um, when I was told we were going to go on or apply for Shark Tank, I knew we were going to get it. You know, people with a square wheel, how could they not? Uh, I also knew I was going to have to go on the show. I was going to have to be the face of the company. So... I didn't enjoy that part of it. I do not have a problem uh, speaking publicly. That's never been a challenge for me. I can get up there and be in front of millions of people and it doesn't bother me if I'm talking about what I know. If you get me up there on a quiz show or a trivia game, I'm going to fall to pieces. But if I'm up there talking about what I know, I'm in my element, I'm good. So I wasn't didn't have a problem with that. So when we went on, we were told we were going to have a pretty long lead time to get ready. And we didn't. We had days. It was like a phone call came in, said, you're filming tomorrow morning at 630. And it was like, you got to be kidding me. I'm not ready. So I had a very condensed timeline to get ready. So that was very, very stressful. By the time I showed up at the lot in Burbank at 630 in the morning, I had been up since all night building prototypes. 
Uh, we didn't film until I think seven o'clock that night. So just an entire 12 hours of waiting and trying to set up your booth and all these terrible things. By the time the doors actually opened and we were there, I had completely mentally checked out. I was just running on autopilot because I had had no sleep. I, there was so much stress from the day. Everything was just absolutely horrifying. So I went on, I killed it. I had no problem performing at all. For me, it was a complete love fest. They were funny. They loved us. We were up there talking to them for a really long time, even though it gets condensed down to a very short time on television. So I thought we were just having the best time ever. We got a great deal with three of them, just a complete love fest. And just to preface, you see a psychiatrist before you go on to make sure that mentally you're kind of okay with all this. And then you see a psychiatrist immediately after you do it just to make sure you're okay. So we saw the person beforehand and I'm like, yeah, no problem, whatever, you know, I'm good with this. And so we go on and my partner was on too, Zach. And as we were both walking out of the thing, I thought it was a complete love fest. He thought it was a complete dog fight. He was just like... It was the worst thing that had happened. It was they wouldn't let him get a word in edgewise. It was the worst experience in the world. And for me, it was the greatest experience in the world. So even though both of us were standing there at the same place at the same time with the exact same result at the end, I thought it was fantastic and I had a really great time and he thought it was just the worst thing ever. Coming up next time. I am a great boss um, because I'm not the boss. I don't tell them when to show up. They don't tell me when to show up. We are going to empty our own trash. We're going to clean our own bathrooms. We're going to sweep our own floors. Are you okay with that? They're not above picking and packing boxes, sorting through inventory. You really need the, the person that's just willing to get done. That's it for this episode of Making It Work. We would love to know what you think. So remember to rate and comment on this podcast. It helps us out a lot. And if you don't want to miss out on the next one, don't forget to subscribe. Thanks to our entrepreneurs, Dana Donafrey, Liz Powers, Raheem Giallo, and David Patrick for their advice. Making It Work is produced by Yoli Marguerite, written by Tom Scallon, and edited by Lars Blockenberg, with creative direction from Jeroen von Koningshoven. Music by Fresh Big Mouth, who created this song with actual sounds from the FedEx Superhub in Memphis, Tennessee. This show is delivered to you by FedEx and presented by Tom Scallon and me, Kelly Martin.